1: Written long ago, the wicked flee when no man pursueth.
0: 22 November Network and Neopolis Media Group to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right.
1: What is up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is episode number 68. I'm one away from my favorite number in the world. Um, and this is going to be all about 1026 North Beckley. And we're going to be taking a look at what was going on that day, November 22nd, 1963, concerning that address. And, uh, we're also going to be taking a look at who was possibly staying at that address, if anyone. Okay? I know it sounds crazy, but just hear me out. Okay? I thought the same thing when I first heard this theory. Um, but there is some compelling evidence that may show us otherwise. uh, What we know uh, that the official narrative of the Warren Commission tells us. So we will take a look at that. Um, But first, I would like to make a couple of additions to last week's show, The Ballad of Larry Crayford. Because you know what? I forgot some stuff. I did. And uh, one big thing that I forgot to mention was uh, that pointed in the direction of Larry Crayford being Tippett's killer is, of course, The Jacket. Okay, found um, as the Tippeth killer was fleeing the scene. You know, he shed it and uh, stuck it under a car. Um, now, this jacket in particular, you know, it's an exhibit of the Warren Commission. Um, Marina testified that Oswald didn't own a jacket like that. And he definitely didn't wear uh, a jacket like that to work. I believe his jacket was found in the school book depository. It was navy blue, kind of a a thicker, puffy, like, vinyl jacket. Uh, But this jacket in particular was a uh, kind of a light gray color, almost white. Uh, And the jacket is significant because of a couple reasons. Uh, The first one being the dry cleaning tags found inside this jacket. Um, that were from California. Now, we know Larry Crayford had ties to California. He grew up in California. He worked in California um, before coming to Dallas. So, you know, it's quite possible you know, that we can tie him there. Because we can't really tie Oswald to this jacket, this supposedly... J- in jacket that was dry cleaned in california now, the only time we know that oswald was in california was during his time in the marine corps now i'm not quite sure what the rules were back then as far as civilian clothes um but you know and i'm sure even when they were spo- you know supposedly off duty they you know they they wore their uh I don't even know what they call them now. Back then, but the, you know they're dress downs, they're BDUs, possibly. I, I don't know if they ever hopped into civilian clothes and went out into the towns, uh, to the bars or whatever it was they did. Um, but you know, this jacket was found five, almost six years after Oswald was in the Marine Corps. For this to be Oswald's jacket, okay, he would have had to have it. Before he went into the Marine Corps, he would have had to take it to California. He would have had to wore it enough to get it dry clean twice in California. He would have had to held on to it uh, through Japan. He would have had to bring it back from Japan. Uh, I believe it, he would have had to take it to the Philippines. You know, would have had to uh, travel across country again back to New Orleans or uh, Dallas. I'm sorry then New Orleans, then on a boat to uh, England, uh, and then as he made his way across Eastern Europe there to, uh, what was it, Finland, and then eventually into Russia, and he would have had to hang on to this jacket. Um, while he was in Russia, we have uh, many, many photographs of Oswald in Russia, none of them wearing this particular jacket. Um, and then he would have had to brought it back from Russia, And it would have had to make the move, uh, you know, between Dallas and uh, New Orleans and multiple residences in between that and the time of the assassination. Um, So it's hard for me to believe that this could have been Oswald's jacket. Now, if we can go with the fact that it's not Oswald's jacket, it had to be somebody's jacket. Okay. And the logical choice would have to be Larry Crayford. He's the one that had ties to California. He's the one that would have spent enough time in California to get that jacket dirty enough or stained enough to have it dry cleaned a couple times. Because um, Larry was kind of a conceited person. Um, <clears throat> he was very... Uh, I don't know what you call the word. is I, I guess conceited is a good word. Um, <clears throat> he thought highly of himself. Uh, his physique, his looks, his abilities, uh, you know, to use weapons, use his hands, and, and fighting, and, you know, he's the kind of guy that rode a motorcycle. He was kind of a badass dude, at least in his own mind he was, and probably in real life as well. Um, you know, you don't get those kind of scars, and you don't, you know, get your teeth kicked in, uh, you know, for no reason. Um, So, where was I? Oh, the jacket. So, now after the FBI tracked down Crayford in Michigan, three days after the uh, assassination, he had supposedly hitchhiked to his sister's house in Michigan. The FBI tracked him down up there, and they took pictures of him. And it just so happens that Larry Crayford was wearing a similar type jacket to the one found... At the typical crime scene, only this one was more of a tan color, like a light beigey color. But it was very much the same style, short-waisted uh, Eisenhower-type jacket with the big collars and, and and the two pockets in the front instead of on the sides. Uh, Looks very similar to the jacket found in Dallas. Now, ladies, you might not know this, but we as guys, you know, if we like something, okay especially that style of something then you know we're going to keep on getting it if we think we look good in it you know if if uh you know somebody out there thinks that they look really great in joseph Abu suits that's all they're going to wear okay so even if they lose one you know or or stain it up and have to have it dry clean they'll have another joseph abu jacket they can wear same style maybe a little different color um same thing with jeans. If we find a pair of jeans that fit us right and we think we look good in them, that's what we buy. You know, it, we we're not like we're not like trendy style whores. You know, that just go along with what's hot. You know, uh, things like that. If I, you know, personally, you know, I like the way that Wranglers are made and fit me. Now, I'm not talking about those cheesy-looking Brett Favre, tight-butt, you know, things. But certain pairs of Wrangler jeans I really like because they're comfortable and they're made well. Uh, and they have a little more room in the uh, in the crotch and the buttocks to where, you know, everything's not all hugged up in there tight. You know, some people might like a certain style. Like if they like skinny jeans, some people do. Uh, if they like, uh, you know, boot-cut, regular, or baggy, you know, I'm a baggy guy, so... I like loose-fitting clothes so that is what I buy okay now I might have four or five pairs of jeans because I know what I like I know exactly what I like now you know one pair might be like a traditional denim one pair might be a little faded one pair might uh, have some kind of other you know treatment done to them one pair might be almost black you know and one pair might just be a traditional blue jean but, you know, guys, they get stuck. Well, not really get stuck, but we know what we like. You know, we don't have to walk in the store and wander around for an hour just looking at stuff. We go in, we get what we want, and we get out. Okay? We don't mess around. And the same thing goes with clothes. You know, it's not like guys go clothes shopping every couple weeks, you know, like like women do. And not that that's a bad thing. You know, women have to, you know, look good as well and, and have a much diverse wardrobe. A much more diverse wardrobe than men do um so that's fine but men if they think they look good in something they, they stay with that style and that's what they do that's just what they do so we have larry crayford liking this style of jacket okay we have it have dry cleaning tags from california which we can tie larry back to california Not to mention all the other stuff I mentioned in the last episode. So if you haven't listened to that episode. All about Larry Crayford. Please go back and do so. Because I paint a pretty vivid picture near the end of it. About how I think he was the killer of J.D. Tippett. And you'll want to go back and listen. And it's based on all the facts that we know about the case. But just told in a different way. How possibly a different way of things could have gone down. And... You know, I like that very much. You know, it's just, I like looking at the case from, from different ways. And we're going to continue that theme today, looking at the case from different ways. And and the article that I'm going to be basing all this on was written by Lee Farley over at the Reopen Kennedy Case uh, Forum, and I think it was done a couple of years ago. And I like those guys over there at ROKC because they think out of the box And they try to look at the case in a new way, through new eyes, differently than anybody ever has before. You know, all those guys, Hassan, Greg Parker, um, Lee Farley, uh, Richard Richard Gilbride, all those guys, man. They think out of the box. I love that. I love that about all those guys. And that's what we need to start doing. Because we've been 50 years on rehashing the same old stuff, and we haven't got anywhere. So, maybe, just maybe looking at some of these things from a different point of view and and clearing out previous misconceptions about the case uh, will help us move forward in trying to determine exactly what in the hell was going on that day. Because, as I've laid out in the past couple episodes, Oswald w- could not have been on the sixth floor. He just couldn't have. You know, I laid that out in the, in the House of Lies episode and the one after that. There's just too many other people on those stairs at certain times there's no way he could have came down the stairs like the Warren commission told us he did now could he have rode down the elevator he would have had a very narrow window to do so not to mention that truly would have heard the elevators coming down as they're going up the stairs you know it's not like these quiet elevators today i mean this was some old rickety you know chains banging around you know gates closing loud motor elevator you know these old style elevators were, were noisy and you could hear them running so you know and we know baker and truly got on an elevator at the fifth floor and went up to the roof now they didn't say whether or not both elevators were up on the fifth floor when they got there that would be an interesting thing to find out but if there was someone on the sixth floor shooting that's how they escaped they either came down the elevator (coughs) unseen or or seen but nobody says anything um you know or they uh i don't know if they went out the fire escape i I don't know you know it's and uh, you know because there's a a fire escape there on the east side wall of the texas school book depository uh you know coming right down from the sixth floor there so could somebody have done that? Possibly. Could they have done it unnoticed? I don't know. You know, there was people just scattered just about everywhere. But you got to remember, all the excitement and all the focus was moving down Elm Street at that time, and their people's attention would have been taken away from the school book depository. And uh, could somebody have slipped out on that fire escape and got down? Maybe. You know, I, I just don't I don't know. Um. So, you know, when you look at all this stuff. You know, you can kind of say to yourself, okay, so if Oswald was set up and framed for the assassination, not only on November 22nd, but also we can point to different instances before November 22nd where he was being set up, he's being made memorable, uh, he was being, uh, you know, noticed. People were being made aware of the name Lee Harvey Oswald, of the brash character of this guy. And we know that just wasn't Lee Oswald. He was a quiet, uh, friendly guy. Um, for the most part. You know, at least that's what we know from people that actually knew him. People like Ernst titovets who knew him in Russia. You know, th- you know, he was just a young guy. Very sociable, very friendly. Had many friends in Russia. You know, never would fight. You know, and uh, I know we're going to be talking about 1026 North Beckley today, you know, and, uh, there's a story that, that, uh, Gladys Johnson's granddaughter tells about how, when she, when she was, uh, when she was little, I don't know if it was, if it was her or her brother was, was fighting with somebody else out front and, and Lee sat him down and, you know, said, no, no, you're not supposed to fight with your, with your brother. You know, you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to love your brother, you know, and this, that. So, you know, Lee was not an outwardly violent person. And I don't know if we can believe, you know, these, these, uh, Warren commission, um, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is these Warren commission unsubstantiated myths of, you know, him being uh, a violent person and knocking Marina around, you know, when he got pissed off or whatever. Um, we just don't know if that's true or not. We have to take Marina's word at that, you know. And I've never seen a picture of Marina with a black eye, or 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 noticed, you know, you know, the cops being called to their to their house or anything like that. So who knows, you know? Yeah, sure, it would be convenient for the people who want to pin this on him uh, to to paint him as having a history of violence, but we just don't know for sure. I mean, he was never, it was very much out of character, I should say. I mean, you know, when, when somebody's very political and idealistic, they're generally not the type of people who will roll up their arm, you know, roll up their sleeves and try to beat the crap out of somebody. You know, they're not the kind of guys that go pick up a gun to try to change things. People interested in politics and ideals and, 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 and policies they like to argue, they like to be heard, they like to try to spread knowledge um, you know, to, and it's a very non-violent process you know, so all of everything about this assassination when it comes to Lee Oswald is very much out of character from what we know from people who actually knew him like really knew him you know, like Ernst Titovitz like his, like his buddies in the Marine Corps like guys he grew up with in New Orleans um, people like that not, you know, the so-called Johnny-come-latelys like Judy Baker who claims to have known him and this and that and the other but people that we can actually prove who knew him um, so all that being said you know, there's a couple things we're going to look at today about 1026 North Beckley and I mean, what? What really? What proof? What proof do we have that Oswald really lived there? I mean, when when you strip it down to that barest of bare bones, what actual proof do we have that Oswald even ever lived at ten twenty six North Beckley? What proof? I mean, are we going to take the testimony of of uh, Earlene Roberts? who's blind in one eye and and you know needs corrective lenses on the other you know are we going to take the word from from uh, I guess uh, Gladys Johnson about her so-called little scrap piece of paper she brought to the Warren Commission with her that said this is all she has and it says ohh lee and it had the dates when he paid her the the rent. I mean, what the hell is that? The Warren Commission didn't even demand or take into consideration even wanting to see the official register of tenants that were staying at 1026 North Beckley. That's all she brought to the Warren Commission with her was a scrap piece of paper that she told them that she wanted to keep Okay, so they told her, okay, we'll make a copy of it and you can keep the original. Because she said she wanted to sell it to make money for all the trouble she's been through and all the money she's lost because people don't want to stay there no more because the quote-unquote assassin lived there. I mean, is that not the most unbelievable thing you've ever heard in your life? Blew my mind when I first read it. Okay? You know, I, I had always heard that the official list of tenants was sealed by the Warren Commission, and we wouldn't get to see it for 75 years. But there is no official list of tenants who were staying at 1026 North Beckley in October and November of 1963. And when you get into the people that we do know were staying there, because, uh, coincidentally, there was a fellow staying there by the name of Herbert Lee. H. Lee. So they have an H. Lee... And an O.H. Lee Staying at the same rooming house At the same time That's kind of odd don't you think I mean what are the chances of that You know And and the supposed room um, Well actually When they went to interview When the FBI went to interview Herbert Lee um, He stated that he, he, he was He was staying there with the guy he worked with at this tile, From this tile company they were working at And, uh, you know, they were sharing a room there. And when they went to interview the guy who was his supposed roommate, he didn't mention anything about Herbert Lee. Didn't mention staying in a room with him. He said he was only there a week when Herbert Lee had said that they they had stayed there for, like, almost a month. You know, just weird inconsistencies that just don't match up very good. It's like they're almost trying to combine narratives here to, to, to form one that kind of suits that kind of suits them another odd thing is on October 7th you know Lee's looking for a place a, 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 you know a rooming house so he goes up to 1026 North Beckley and talks to the talks to the, uh, the landlady there and she tells him no sorry we're full check back in a couple weeks we should have an opening so that's why Lee Oswald goes and finds another place run by mary bledsoe now he registered there under his real name lee h oswald okay and it's very weird because why would you register at one place under your real name and then under the next place at a fake name you know o h lee o h lee so why would you know if you're trying to hide? Why would you do that? Because another problem comes up because this is about the time that Marina is about ready to give birth to their second daughter, Rachel, which we know occurred on October 17th. Now Oswald moved in to 1026 North Beckley a week after being kicked out of Mary Bloodsoe' uh, rooming house. I think he moved in into back in North Beckley on the fourteenth of October, because miraculously within a week they had got rooms. Now, you know they asked they ask uh, Gladys Johnson on the stand at the War Commission, you know, are you normally, do you normally run at full capacity? And she says, no, you know we normally only have like ten or twelve people there at a time at any given time. And she's like, and they they said, but the, but when Oswald showed up the first time, you were full. Yes. And a week later, you weren't. That's right. Just weird stuff going on here, okay? Now, Mary Bledsoe, as everybody knows, is just happened to be on a bus on November twenty second, 1963, that her former tenant, Lee H. Oswald, got on immediately after the assassination. And she said, you know, that because... You know, that she didn't like him so much, she recognized him as he got on the bus. And, you know, she stated that he was wearing, uh, you know, just shirt that was already tore up and, and, and all this other stuff. Very damning for Oswald. Very damning testimony for Oswald as far as him actually being on that bus. And, uh, you know, the reason that Mary Bledsoe gave that she kicked him out after a week is because he made too many trips to the refrigerator. And he was coming and going all the time. Now, Lee Oswald wasn't the type to just shovel food down his gullet. And he didn't like to spend money on food, that's for sure. So that sounds very much not like Lee Oswald. Okay? So, I don't even know if it was Lee Oswald staying at Mary Bledsoe's place a week before that. You know, just very something stuff just not adding up here. Not adding up at all. Now but we're supposed to believe that Larry Crafer is being let to sleep in a bar, in a closet, and, and and be Jack Ruby's little bitch boy, his little barmaid, his phone answerer, his dog feeder. Um <clears throat> his his you know, whatever. And uh not be paid anything. And you know, everybody's just cool with that situation. You know, that's that's very odd as well, you know. You know. I just don't get it. Some something's not adding up here, really, at all. So You know, another odd thing is, you know, supposedly Oswald gave Ruth Payne the phone number for 1026 North Beckley, right? So he, so she could call him when Marina went into labor. He never told her he wasn't staying under his real name. So why would he do that? You know, he wanted, he definitely wanted to be there for the birth of his daughter. So what happens when when Ruth Payne calls the, the rooming house and somebody answers and she asks for Lee Oswald and they say there's nobody here by that name because there's not there's somebody there registered under the name OH Lee okay Lee would never get that message that his wife's going into labor why would he do that That makes no sense whatsoever no sense whatsoever. Another seemingly out of character thing is is this whole narrative of you know Oswald's escape from the Texas School Book Depository. Oswald was never really known to take taxi cabs. Okay, he was too frugal for that. You know, he, he he never rode in a taxi ever. At least not in the official narrative of any of anything that we know of. Um, maybe unless he absolutely had to, like in Mexico City. I don't know, maybe he didn't know the bus routes or whatever. I don't know, but when it comes to getting around either New Orleans where he took the trolley or a bus or walked, you know, he would either in Dallas, he would either take the bus or walk. Never did take a cab, you know, it was a a frivolous thing, you know, a waste of money because even now, I mean, to take a taxi cab across town costs a lot more money. Then riding the bus, yeah, riding the bus is more of a pain in the ass. You got to wait, and you got to stop five hundred times before you get to where you're going. But you know, a lot of people look at it like, look, I'd rather pay thirty five cents to do that than pay twenty dollars for a taxi cab and have to tip the driver. You know, I was, you know, just weird stuff like that. That and and another thing that sticks out as odd to me is that. This, this supposed taxicab went seven blocks past ten twenty-six North Beckley. Now what's what else is odd to me, okay, is when you when you when you look on a map of Oswald's whereabouts, okay, between twelve thirty and one fifty, um, and we see where he got out of the cab at. It was down by Neely Street. Okay? Where he used to live? Or where he maybe was staying? Hmm. Because when you look at a map, you see where the Houston Street viaduct comes and almost turns right into Beckley Avenue. North Beckley and uh, all he would have had to do to walk home really is head down Houston Street he wouldn't have had to do this whole big complicated thing of um, getting off the bus and I think he caught the bus he got off the bus between uh, Padreus and Lamar Street, and supposedly got in a cab at uh, Commerce and Lamar Street at the, the Greyhound station. And now how that works is you follow the you follow the route down. through Wood, you know, where it turns into the Houston Street Viaduct, um, and then into Beckley. And then he supposedly goes seven blocks past Beckley to Neely Street, the corner of Neely and Beckley. Now this is an area he probably knew very well, because he used to live on Neely Street. I mean, this whole thing is just whacked, totally, totally whacked, when you really start looking at it. And when you think about how Tippett was sitting there at the Houston Street Viaduct waiting for Lee Oswald, I mean, he was waiting for something. Um, And that was the most likely route for Oswald to take home, really. Um, So it all starts to become a little bit more clear. So, of course, the official narrative is that he walked back seven blocks to his rooming house. Went in and changed his clothes. Well, what if the person that got out of this cab never went back to the rooming house? Because where he got out of the cab out there at Beckley and Neely, okay, is very much closer to heading towards the Texas Theater and, I mean, even the, the uh, Tippett murder site um, than coming from Neely. And why I was sitting out there waiting? You know, Earlene Roberts says that she saw, she heard the horn honk, and she looked out and see a cop car out there. And then Oswald gets dressed and he's flying out the door. And she looks out and Oswald's standing there at the uh, bus stop at the corner of Zangs and Beckley, and uh, that's the last she sees of him. Like he's waiting for something. It's just very, very odd behavior. More odd, more odd things on top of odd things. And we don't even know how the, basically, how the numbers of these, uh, of the rooms in Beckley were set up. You know, whether they were alphabetized or whether they were numbered, likely numbered. Um, but she's, she told the Warren Commission she had about 20 or 22 odd rooms in this house. Okay. And we know, at least, basically the best the researchers have come up with over the years is, is the names of possibly around 13 people that were actually staying there at the time. One of them was Gladys Johnson's husband, so he doesn't really count. Um, a couple of them were rooming together, so you got to shave off a couple for that. And yet, Oswald is given... Tiniest, smallest room in the house that really wasn't much of a room. I mean, it was big enough to put a bed in and that's about it. I think there's a bed and a dresser in it and that's about it. I mean, they describe it as barely big enough to swing a cat around it. Okay. And from, from the way they tell it, you know, it's right off the Right off of the main room as soon as you walk in the house. So and Gladys Johnson said that she used to use that room for when her grandkids would come and stay. So it wasn't really a so-called tenant room. You know, so it likely wouldn't have even had a number because it really wasn't used for tenants. I mean it was right on the main floor, right off the uh, the main living room area. So people have brought up this theory what if we have room zero that H. Lee stayed in it would look a whole lot like O. H. Lee and then we have zeros and O's getting mixed up and O. H. Lee and H. Lee is getting mixed up or what if O was a different, different room in the house altogether? it's hard to say now, Jack Ruby was very good friends with Bertha Cheek, who was, uh, Earline Roberts' sister. And he actually met with her, uh, I believe it was on November 17th, supposedly to talk about business. But this is right around the same time that Larry Crayford brought to Jack Ruby an ultimatum that, uh, they were going to have to part ways if, if Jack Ruby didn't start paying him. And, uh, uh, I guess Jack liked the guy. I guess Jack, or I guess he'd earned his uh, stripes or whatever. But this is about the same time that Bertha Cheek came into the Carousel Club to, to supposedly talk to Jack Ruby about business. Now Bertha Cheek herself was a proprietor of rooming houses, and of course her sister was Earlene Roberts. So maybe she knew of a of a relatively cheap spot. Where Larry could stay, or maybe even for free, you know, maybe they just gave him the smallest room in the house where he maybe could stay for free, you know, that wasn't actually. Maybe Jack wasn't too hip with you know this guy dipping in the register whenever he wanted and and drinking beer whatever he wanted or you know just being around all the time. So maybe it was mutually beneficial. And now we also have uh, a curious uh, FBI report from one of their confidential informants that they knew the people that lived next door to 1026 North Beckley who complained several times to local Dallas authorities uh, of uh, a visitor to the rooming house at 1026 North Beckley would park their car in their driveway instead of on the street while they visited 1026 North Beckley and that this car belonged to Jack Ruby Now, this informant begged uh, the FBI not to say anything or ask question these people about it because they would would know that he is the one that told on them because they did not want to get involved in all this business. Um, So that lead was never followed up on. So what if? You know, and nobody in that rooming house has ever come forward as saying that they had saw or interacted with Lee Oswald. You know, hardly never. So, it's just very, very odd, you know, that, and, and, you know what, I would think that if Erlene Roberts and these people have interaction with Lee, if he doesn't say much, um, and he keeps to himself, they're not really going to pay much attention to this dude, you know you know how people can get sometimes, you know, they almost become invisible because they're, they they just, they're always head down. They don't say anything. They just do their own thing. You just kind of, they're very forgetful. You know, you don't even worry about them. You don't even think about them. You know, they're just oddballs and, you know, whatever floats their boat, you know, and when you're in a rooming house situation, people very much tend to mind their own business because if, if not, you know, conflicts can quickly get out of hand and then, you know, you still have to live with these people. So, Even now, you know, in like recovery houses and halfway houses and stuff, people mind their business. They ain't worried about who that guy is or why they're there or why they're staying there or what their story is. There's very much no socializing. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that somebody that actually looked as much like Oswald as Larry Crafer did at a glance or from a distance or, you know, in passing. You know, I would think that early Roberts, who was blind in one eye and couldn't see very well out of the other one, could possibly mistake Crayford for Oswald. It's possible. It's possible. Now, then you have to ask, well, where the hell was Lee Oswald living then? If he wasn't living, if he never lived with Mary Bledsoe and he never lived at Beckley, then where the hell was Lee Oswald living all this time? Well, let me take you back a little further. Now, when he first got back from Mexico, he was staying at the YMCA in Dallas. Now, this is significant because at about this same time, okay, there's a couple other people staying at this YMCA that are notable to the case. One of whom is Jack Lawrence. Now, Jack Lawrence... Uh, Is A suspected assassin He had ties uh, He was in New Orleans uh, In the summer of 63 Just like somebody else we know And then he also worked at the uh, Downtown Lincoln Mercury dealership Where the supposed fake Lee Oswald uh, You know came and was driving around, acting like an ass And said he was going to come into some money soon And come back and buy the car if he liked it Um, Now the same Jack Lawrence Is the same guy Who never sold a car there, okay? So they didn't really. Normally, they'll give salesmen demonstrators, you know, like they did back then, so they could drive them around town and be like, "Yeah, this is our new model. Uh, You can come on down to the to the dealership and and uh, check it out. Maybe get one for yourself, you know." Um, that's how they would, would reward their good salesmen. But Jack never qualified for their demonstrator. They actually let him borrow a car he asked them uh, to borrow a car uh, the day before the assassination. And the day of the assassination, he was supposed to be at work, but he never showed up for work. They next see Jack Lawrence come running into the dealership at about 1 o'clock p.m., muddy from head to toe, ash and white, And immediately going to the bathroom and throwing up. Now that may not seem odd in itself. If if, uh, he was possibly in Dealey Plaza and saw the president get killed, that's a possibility. Because you know what he was. His excuse was that he he went out the night before and, and he was drinking, and he woke up late, and he was coming to work. But he got caught up in all this traffic there in uh, on Elm Street, so he decided the best thing to do would be to park the car behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll and walk to work on the day of the assassination. That was his great grand idea. <laughs> so, but this guy was living at the YMCA in Dallas for two months. I mean, the whole time he was in Dallas, he was living at the YMCA. And he left town right after the assassination. You know, as soon as all that business happened with you know him not bringing the car back, and then when they did get it back, it was all muddy. And, uh, you know, he had never sold a car for him anyway. They let him go. Told him they didn't need him no more. So, he quickly left town. Well, a couple other people who were actually in Dallas in October... At about the same time as all this was happening, were some fellas named Lawrence Howard, William Seymour, and Lauren Hall. And we know this because they got busted in Dallas with a bunch of uh, pills and God knows what else. Supplies and stuff, I guess they were running, running uh, either through Dallas or, or into Dallas or something of that nature. But anyway, they were arrested. They were questioned. They had asked to see the FBI. They were questioned by the FBI and ATF. And uh, eventually let go. But when they were staying in Dallas, because they were told not to leave town immediately. So when they were staying in Dallas, they stayed at the YMCA. Same place as Jack Lawrence. Same place as Lee Oswald when he first got back from Mexico. So you've got all these cats staying at the YMCA in Dallas. Now, the YMCA in Dallas was a very large facility. um, 13 stories high, I believe it was. uh, With lots of rooms in it. And this this is the kind of place that Lee Oswald would have liked. Because it was cheap. uh, Very cheap to stay there. You know, and it wasn't like a hotel but you know he didn't have to actually look for you know a room around other people or, or some other place. This would have suited Lee Oswald's need needs perfectly but we're led to believe that he only stayed there a week and then went looking for a rooming house. Now a curious curious event happens. On the afternoon of November 22nd, 1963. And not too many people talk about it. Not too many people at all. But if you actually go back and you read the transcripts, okay, of, of radio, Dallas Police radio transcripts from November 22nd, 1963. And I will tell you, it's a very tedious task. Because okay, it's several pages long It's a lot of boring stuff But one thing Jumped off the page at me I mean literally Grew legs and jumped off the page Right at my face When I saw it I was like oh my god What does this mean At about 3.30 That afternoon There was an explosion And a fire Reported at the YMCA in Dallas. But that's all we know of it. Now, on the radio transcripts, nothing was ever followed up on. Uh, we don't have reports of the people who responded to it. Um, I couldn't find anything looking for it in, in newspapers, you know, from back then or online or anything else. Okay, but curiously, Across the radio at about 3.30 p.m., we have reports of an explosion and a fire at the YMCA, okay? And we also know Jack Ruby used to frequent the YMCA, you know, that's where go, he liked to go swimming, you know, and, and, uh, sit and sit in the steam room or whatever, you know. Uh, so there's that. Now, here's my gigantic what if, Okay. when when you take into consideration all these other facts okay, that we know but we're going to look at them in a much different light what if okay what if Lee Oswald never lived at North Beckley what if he did indeed or was indeed turned away or even if he ever went there at all we don't even know that. So, what if when he came back from Mexico, he just stayed at the YMCA? Not that hard, you know. And if Ruth Payne needed him, she could call the Texas School Book Depository and tell him, "Hey, Marina's going into labor." Or she could call the YMCA and leave a message for him. Hey, Marina's going into labor. You know why? Why? Why use a fake name? You know, in a place you just moved into when your wife's about ready to pop, that they couldn't reach you at. Much more in character for frugal, penny pinching, tightwad Lee Oswald to stay at the YMCA than to be out traveling around looking for these rooming houses to stay at, where he would have been under much closer scrutiny than in a 13-story YMCA building where nobody would really pay attention to him, to him whatsoever. You know, even when you're in a rooming house, people you know, people are coming and going, you know, they see what you do. It's a house, okay? But you're much more inconspicuous in a 13-story building. You're just an ant in an anthill, okay, at that point. And then that explosion got me because I thought, holy schmoly, you know what if that explosion was designed to destroy evidence that he had been there that these other people had been there at the same time that he'd actually lived there the whole time because without Lee Oswald staying at his Beckley residence we don't have him killing Tippett. we don't have him taking the taking the taxi cab there okay but we do have Crayford. We've got Crayford killing Tippett. That much I'm sure of. So what if all this happened seemingly on the fly? You know, they improvised. Bad shit happened. Because you know what? They were at that Beckley Street rooming house. Beckley Avenue rooming house. At 1.30 p.m. How is that even possible? Oswald wasn't even arrested yet. Nobody, and I mean nobody, knew where he was living. Nobody. Not even Ruth Payne. Not even Ruth Payne. Because if the police would have showed up there, they would have said, oh, sorry, nobody here by the name of Lee Oswald lives here. You know, this is our registered guest. Sorry. Sorry. Nobody here by that name. Move on. <laughs> no. They had Oswald dead to rights at the Beckley Street Rooming House at 1.30 p.m. Before he was even arrested at the Texas Theater. So you tell me if the fix wasn't in for old Lee. Or was it Mr. O.H. Lee? Or was it Mr. Herbert Lee? Or Herbert Leon Lee? Or Lee Lee Lee. Or Larry Lee. Or Larry Crayford. Now one other thing I wanted to clear up is it and I meant to mention it on the last episode, is uh some mis how misinformation gets perverted over the years. You know, like I was talking about in the in the House of Lies episode And I was gonna give you an example of it last week and forgot. So this week I'm gonna do it for you. Now, if you go on the Spartacus Education site and you look up Larry Crayford's bio, okay, you'll read his basic fact bio, which is very incomplete, I might add. Um, but if you scroll down to the bottom, you know, where it has out outward sources for their for their biography, you know, it has links. Or it'll have an article or something about, you know, just other, other stuff about them. But if you scroll all the way down to the bottom of Larry's, you'll see a speech, or a piece of a speech, given by Gayton Fonzie to the Mary Farrell JFK Lancer Pioneer Award Banquet Ceremony that I guess that Gayton Fonzie was uh, either speaking at or receiving an award at. And in his speech, attributed to him on this site, It says, uh, it it tells a little story and it says that, you know, as Larry Crayford, Jack Ruby's barman was being uh, interviewed by Warren commissioners, uh, Earl Warren himself and Gerald Ford at his side, Larry Crayford, they asked him what he did in the service and he said, uh, I was a master sniper in the Marine Corps. And then the very next question that Earl Warren asked him was, uh, so what kind of entertainment do they have at the Carousel Club? Now, I must admit, when I first saw this, you know, you see the name Gaten Fonzie, and you think, damn, all right, this this must be legit. You know, he's a respected researcher. You know, holy shit, you know, Crayford's admitting to be a sniper right here. You know, and then the Warren Commission just... Makes a left turn and goes somewhere else. You know. The fix had to be in. You know. But s- something was gnawing at me about that statement. I was a master sniper in the Marine Corps. Because I would known Larry Crayford was actually in the Army. He wasn't in the Marine Corps. Lee Oswald was in the Marine Corps. But not Larry Crayford. So I went back. And I, I looked and looked. And I had my buddy Will look. And we couldn't find any instance in Larry Cravens Warren Commission testimony where he was ever interviewed by Earl Warren himself and Gerald Ford. It was all done by Hubert and Griffin over a three-day period. So there's two big inconsistencies there. Glaring ones, actually. Um, which made us seriously doubt the authenticity of this statement. So I dug a little deeper. I kept digging until I actually found the genesis of where Gaten Fonzie pulled this from. And it was from an article in the early 90s, written by comedian, satirist, Mort Saul. Yes, that Mort Saul, uh, who is, you know, an early critic of the Warren Commission, who had written written this article basically as a satirical piece for people who might not be too familiar with the case to illustrate a point that the Warren Commission was very inept in their task and their duties. Now, what better way to illustrate that than to have a guy say to them, Hey, man, over here, I was a sniper. Okay? And then they immediately ask, So, what kind of entertainment... Uh, did the club have and not follow up on that damning statement of I was a sniper in the Marine Corps you know it, it's, it's an illustration a very loose illustration of, of, of basically how the Warren Commission did work okay this was not meant to be factual in any way shape or form it was written by Mort Saul as a satirical piece you know, I went back and I found the Mort saw article that this was pulled from. So then we have a big problem because I, I guess Gaten he thought that this Mort saw piece was legit. So legit that he decided to quote it in a speech that he gave to Lancer and the Mary Farrell Foundation. And then Spartacus Education site and John Simpkin thought it was so damning that they included it in Larry Crayford's bio. Okay? And then somebody comes along like me and reads it and goes, Damn! You know? And I tell you about it. Back in the episode of Tale of Two Assassins. And I look like an idiot because I, back then I didn't do my homework like I should have. I saw that statement. It's on the educational site from a respected researcher, Gaten Fonzi. I just assumed it was true. I just assumed it was true. But that just goes to show you that no matter what the source, no matter how respected they are, always double check and do your homework if possible. Take it back to the primary source documents. Because that's where the truth lies. That's where the truth lies. Things get so and that's just one little small example of one little piece of seemingly innocuous information in this case, associated with this case, there's hundreds of them, of, of probably thousands of them that have gotten totally out of, out of hand and perverted through the years by various researchers, and then disseminated out across the internet for the world to see. And it's very, very hard you know, the, more, the longer it's out there the, the harder it gets to actually get back to the original primary source so that is what I was talking about in the last episode how things get twisted and it's very hard to straighten them back out again uh, but so take that to heart people even the most respected researchers um, and even the most respected JFK sites out there can get things wrong can be proprietors of misinformation, unknowingly or lazily, because they didn't do their homework. You know, when you ju- you just assume, like I did. Hey, well, Gaten Fonzie, man, that dude's legit. You know, he does his homework; that must be true. You know, Mort Saul sitting at home laughing his ass off. But anyway, that's that's that. And uh, so, just be careful out there when you come across information. You know, you always want to double check your facts and take it back to the primary sources whenever possible. Okay. Now, I want to uh, give a big shout out to everybody that's been supporting the show recently, both monetarily and uh, in other ways. I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart more than you will ever know, people, because I do this for you. I do this to start a conversation, I do this to get you thinking. I do this to get you thinking out of the box. To yank you back out of that Warren Commission veil and say, No, look, it can be another way. There can be another explanation for this. Okay, we don't have to rely on what they told us. You know, we can find the truth if we keep keep digging hard enough. We will get there. We ain't gonna get no help from them doing it, but we will get there. I have faith in that. And I'm not gonna stop until we do. Big shouts out. Big shouts out to my boy Will on Twitter at JFK Prime Source. He's working on a research website as we speak that's gonna be it's gonna change the face of JFK research. Okay? It's gonna be like a one stop shop. Um, it's going to blow your minds and I can't wait to bring it to you. Will's going to come on the show at a later date when he gets the site up and running. And, uh, we're going to bring it to the world live right here on the Lone Gummer podcast. Big shouts out to my boy Carmine. I know he hasn't been feeling good. His internet, his dial up internet is broke. <laughs> um, that's why he wasn't on the show this week. Um, hopefully next week he'll be back. Uh, I think, uh, I think they knocked all the dust out of his modem So hopefully He will be back on next week's show And we will be talking about The defection And uh, You can check him out over at com and on Facebook At uh, Neapolis Media Group Facebook.com backslash NeapMG N-E-A-P the letter M the letter G Very easy Very easy um, Also check out my guy Chuck Ocelli he's got an amazing amazing back catalog of shows JFK related um, I recently went, went back and listened to his show with Ernst Titovitz Oswald's best friend in Russia very good show um, I learned a lot about <clears throat> Oswald's time in Russia and, and, and how, who he was as a person and uh, Chuck even plays some of the old recordings that Ernst and Oswald did while in Russia when they were play acting and messing around. and It's, it's, it's just awesome. So everybody go check out. Um, Chuck Ocelli. On ucy.tv. Backslash toe. A lot of his older episodes. Can be found on. Yourlisten.com Just search the Ocelli effect. When you get there. And also my buddy Doug. Over at the Dallas Action. On Spreaker and Facebook. Uh, he's pumping them out. He must have got a wild hair up his ass Uh, he's going just about every week now so it's good to see Doug back and rolling everybody go show him some love and people if you like what we're doing share links, please share links on your personal page Uh, it can only help us out to get more ears on this stuff give our stuff a like click the little heart button say that you like it, give us a follow on Spreaker, Uh, you can like our pages on Facebook um, there's a ton of million different ways to listen Through apps On the web um, So please if you enjoy what we're doing Drop us a couple bucks You can donate at TLGpodcast.com Or just give us a like You know, The more likes we get the more visible we get To our hosts The people at Spreaker uh, The people at iTunes um, Sharing links Like I said you know, just post a link to the show Say hey I, li- I just listened to the show it's great. I loved it. You should check it out. You know, just doing that, one small thing, can help us grow immensely. Okay? Because this is about as grassroots ghetto as it gets, baby, when it comes to radio, when it comes to podcasting, when it actually comes to a podcast about the JFK assassination. I mean, that's a very, very narrow subject, narrow interest uh So any help from my fellow brothers and sisters out there who are interested in the case will only help. And, you know, I see the numbers, I see how many people listen every week, and then I look down at the like button. And I'm like, really? 350 people listen, but only one person liked it? So I know you guys can do better than that. All it takes is a click of a button to hit the like button, okay? And if I get, like, 20 or 30 likes on an episode, Spreaker sees that, and they're like, oh, man, this guy's doing something. We might have to feature him, which only gets more eyes and ears on the show, okay, which only helps us out, you know. It's all about growing bigger and bigger and bigger. So, that's the plan. You know, I see I see these podcasts, and it, I'll admit it pisses me off, okay. I see these podcasts like Serial, uh undisclosed they're talking about they're talking about a random murder case from 16 years ago that I guarantee you nobody's ever heard of unless you've heard their show okay millions of people listen millions of downloads it's turned into a massive franchise okay serial started it they did 12 episodes all about this court case. And about this murder of this girl. <clears throat> now, that blew up. Everybody loved it. It was awesome. You know, and it was a good show. You know, I, I'm a, I'm a, you know, if you like the JFK assassination stuff, you're probably interested in, like, true crime stuff, too. And I am, too. You know, about serial killers and real life weird cases and, you know, just, you know, just weird stuff, but... they're getting millions and millions of listens and downloads and likes and money, ungodly amounts of money coming in for this one show that has 12 episodes that talks about a murder that nobody's ever heard of. Really? And I live in, I mean, I live close to Baltimore and I didn't even hear about it. Okay? And this was 16 years ago. This cat's been sitting in prison all this time and now they want to start looking at it. On a podcast. And it's generating millions of millions of listens. And it spawned another podcast called Undisclosed. Where they're looking at the case again. And doing episodes. And I just heard that after the first episode. Already one million downloads after the first episode. One million. And they're only on iTunes. So people. People, people, people. When you look at a case as big and as complex and as interesting as the JFK assassination is with all its players and all its plots and all its twists, I mean, you know, this could be something big eventually. If the right people hear it. So please, help a brother out. Share this stuff. You know, you're my friends. Put it on your page. Say, hey, I just listened to this. It's really great. You guys should check it out. You know, it doesn't cost you anything to do that. Hit the like button. You know, it's small things like that. Every week, man. Every week. Just help a brother out. Help a brother out. You know, I post this thing in like 30 different groups on Facebook. Which is a task unto itself every week. You know, it's almost worse than actually doing the show. But I do that because as narrow of an interest as people have in this case. You know, I want people that care enough to be in a group about the JFK assassination, like on Facebook, um, to hear it or to have the opportunity to hear it. And that's why I do it. I mean, where else can, you know, you find the show and, uh, unless you just stumble upon it one day, you know, on iTunes, which is a very, very small possibility, you know, because a lot of people don't listen to history-based uh, educational podcasts. You know, they, they want to be entertained. They want to laugh. They want to cry, you know, blah, 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 okay? But, you know, more and more people are turning to alternative media to get their news, to get their entertainment. So, I mean, even, look, Mark Marin does the WTF podcast, had President Barack Obama land his helicopter, sit in his garage, and do his podcast this week. Are you serious? Are you serious? One of Obama's staffers was a big, big fan of the Mark Marin podcast, WTF, which stands for What the Fuck. Okay? Convinces Obama he should go on this podcast and be real, be himself. You know, they, they he actually does a real interview with this guy, Mark Marin. Okay? A real interview. It wasn't no scripted interview. Nonsense, it, it, you know, it wasn't politically correct answers. You know, the N word was flying around. So, I'm telling you, this medium that we have here, where anybody can have a voice, you know, is, is, is growing because people are tiring very quickly of the same old crap every 15 minutes on the radio. I swear my kid wants to listen to the radio, they play the same goddamn songs on there. On the hour, every hour. I mean, seriously. And there's no payola? (laughs) Give me a fucking break. I mean, it's the same shit over and over again. I can't can't do that. I can't sit here and listen all day driving to the same shit over and over again. I want to be captivated. I want to be entertained. I want to be enthralled. I want to learn something. Okay? And I do. I listen to all the JFK shows. I listen to Doug's podcast. I listen to Chuck's. You know, I, I... I listen to Black Op Radio. Hell, I even listen to Brent Holland sometimes, you know, among other ones that I listen to. I mean, Stitch, Stitch, Stitcher's my best friend. I can just crank the set Stitcher on there, find him, He's got the new episodes on, and I'll just go through them, you know. I love it, love it, because you never hear the same crap twice, ever. Yeah, it's the same guy talking, but it's something totally different. You know, and these guys are doing it because they love it and they want to do it, not because they have to do it. Okay? Just keep that in mind. The world is turning, it's shifting, the way we get entertainment, the way we get our news, and all that. But I'll shut up now <laughs> and thank you for tuning in to this the sixty eighth episode of the Lone Gummin Podcast. This some is in the can, beamed up to the satellite. Down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy Rob Clark on the Loan Podcast. Peace.